Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, then please turn to James chapter 4, as today we conclude this series of messages out of the book of James that we've been calling God's Word in My Everyday Life, and in which James has been coming to us week by week and message by message, and he's been coming to us with a topic of real faith. That's the topic. And he's been coming to us and saying, look, contrary to maybe what you think, contrary to what you might have been told, contrary even perhaps to the way that you live, pause, here's what real faith actually looks like. Here's what real faith actually sounds like. Here's what real faith actually does and doesn't do. Here's how real faith expresses itself and manifests itself. Here is how real faith actually lives in regard to this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue, all of these different issues that James has plucked right out of our everyday lives. And I have to tell you, there is perhaps no more real faith-challenging everyday life issue than the issue that he deals with next. James comes to us today with faith and with money. And here's his message. He says, real faith lives for God and not for money. And then after he's done giving us the message, for the good of our own souls, for the good of our own marriages, for the good of our own children who are watching us and learning all the time, for the good of one another, for the good of this church, for the good of this city, for the good of the world, for the good of the spread of the gospel to all the nations, for the good of the glory of God, having told us real faith lives for God and not money. James will, metaphorically, of course, each hand to each one of us a little mirror, and he'll say, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to fearlessly and honestly look into it and ask yourself, who or what? do I live for? Because real faith lives for God, not money. So we pick up our study today in James chapter uh, 4, beginning in verse 13, where James says this, he says, come now, and then he says this, you who say. So what is he going to do? He's going to put words in your mouth. Watch the words that he puts into your mouth, okay? And then stop and fearlessly and honestly ask yourself, all right, is that how I speak? Is that how I think? Is that how I, and here's the key word, plan? Because the words that he's going to put into our mouths, guys, are words of planning. He says, come now, you who say, and then here comes the planning statement, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there. You can hear the nature of planning, right? And do what? Because it's the language of commerce. It's the language of finance. It's the language of money. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, there it is, and make a profit. And so the statement that James puts into our mouths at the beginning of his teaching on this topic is a statement that deals with the way that we plan, and specifically with the way that we plan our business, with the way that we plan our finances, with the way that we plan our money, and for that matter, with the way that we plan our lives. And in doing that, James is not saying that he's against a plan. In fact, I think in light of all that the Bible teaches elsewhere about being responsible, about being prudent, about the value of plan making, particularly in this particular area of our lives, I think you'd find James to be quite in favor of it. So he's not against making a plan. He's against making a plan that does not literally account for God or for God's mission or for God's kingdom or for God's judgment or for God's heaven, or for God's hell, or for God's gospel, by which people all over this planet can gain heaven 
and escape hell. James is against making a plan, you see, that ends up in our planning and running our businesses and planning and running our finances and planning and running our money and, for that matter, again, planning and running our lives as though this life that you and I are presently living is never actually going to end and therefore is the only life to live for. He's adamantly against that. And as only he can do, he, well, he makes that known. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit as if God does not exist. He's saying, come now, you who say that, because that, he's saying, is absolute foolishness. And now he's going to tell us why. It's foolishness, he says, because yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know if you're going to have a tomorrow. In fact, true statement, you don't even know if you're going to have a rest of today. He's going to begin now to discuss the fragility, the fragile nature of our lives and just how incredibly short they are. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then he says something. He says, what is your, and then he uses the word life. And I actually, in light of where we're going as a church beginning next week, we're going to be talking about leveraging your life. I want you to say that word with me. And I got to tell you up front, the nine o'clock service set a high standard. I'm not going to lie. I mean, if you're in middle school and you've always wanted to scream in the middle of a sermon, this is for you. Seriously. Because I want you to engage in this particular word, in this particular concept, in this particular idea, not just with your mind, but with your heart, with your body, with your voice. Literally, blow me off the stool when you say it. I'm going to say, what is your, and you're going to say, life. You got it? Everybody ready? Because if you don't do it, we're doing it again. Here we go. James says, what is your? That was better than the first service. Don't tell them. What is your life? Don't know? Well, now he's going to tell us. He says, for you are a mist. The word can also be translated, you're a vapor. You're something somebody can walk through. You're something somebody can see through. You're ethereal. You're opaque. You're something somebody can walk into and dissipate with their hands. You're something that is threatened and whose existence is completely wiped out by nothing more than a gentle breeze. You are something that exists until the sun begins to rise and burns you away in about 15 minutes. You are something that is barely here even while you are here and you're not here for long. He says, what is your life? Okay, all right, let me tell you. He says, for you are a mist. He doesn't say you're like a mist. You are a mist. That appears for how long? For a long time, forever. Certainly it will never end, and that's how I ought to live. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The point being what? The point being, guys, how in the world then can you and I live and plan and run our businesses and run our finances and run our monetary lives and run our life in general, our time, our talents, the whole shooting match in such a way that does not account for God, for God's mission, for God's kingdom, for God's judgment for God's heaven, hell, and for the gospel that He has given to us by which people may escape hell and gain 
the eternal glories of heaven. How in the world can you and I live like this life that we're presently living is never going to end when it so obviously will, and like it's the only life to live live for when it so obviously isn't. Get the idea? I was reminded of that this week. My wife and I were given two nights free stay at the Marco Island Marriott. I don't know how many of you guys have ever been there. I highly recommend it, but only if you get two free nights, (laughs) which is a cool deal. And uh, we've been trying to use this certificate for like two years and kept pushing it back and pushing it. Finally, they said, look, you have till November, okay? So we moved mountains to get everything scheduled and everything out of the way so we could leave Thursday and come back yesterday. And Friday night, when we were over there having dinner, uh, you know, I paid with my credit card. And on my credit card, my name is T.J. Hendricks, not Thomas John Hendricks, not Thomas J. Hendricks, just T.J. Hendricks. And so I gave this woman my credit card, and she went off and ran the card or whatever, and she came back, and you know how it is. They come back, and they go, oh, Mr. Hendricks, you know, I hope you guys had a nice dinner or whatever, unless you're me and you spell your name the way that I do, in which case they stumble upon it as soon as they start to read it. It's like, oh, well, hi, Mr. Hendricks, see you. You know, I mean, that's as good as it gets. So she punted on the last name completely, and she came back, and like with great enthusiasm and in a way that totally caught me off guard... She says, okay, TJ, and she hands me this card, right? And I was overwhelmed in that moment. There is exactly one person who has ever consistently called me TJ, and he did it with that kind of enthusiasm. Like I, It's like I heard his voice coming out of this woman, which was odd in and of itself because he's very masculine. But it was my grandfather. So she drops the, okay, TJ, on me, and in like a second, I'm four years old, and I'm in his basement in Downers Grove, Illinois, and it's Christmas, and it's my cousin John, and we're running around. Or I'm five, standing at the bus stop in my snowsuit in a snowstorm, waiting not for the bus, but for my grandpa who came to get me every snowstorm, so much so that the bus driver finally came to my classroom and said, are you still riding the bus or not? Because he so loved to pick me up and take me to school. One snowstorm, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but (laughs) the snow was so thick that we got about a half mile from the school and he got stuck. And because we're Hendrixes and we're everywhere on time and heaven forbid we miss 10 minutes of kindergarten, you know, because who knows, that could ruin your life. He carried me all the way to school. She drops the, hey, TJ, on me, you know, okay, TJ, and I'm in a boot store because Grandpa always wore boots. He owned a garbage business. So about every six months, I could cajole him into getting me a new pair so I could be like him. You get the idea? I'm at Christmases. I'm at Thanksgivings. I'm at Easter's. I'm in Baptist Hospital after he had a heart attack. At 9.30 at night, because I had a meeting that particular night. I come walking in, it's he and it's I, and that's it. The cardiac intensive care unit, and he's sitting there when I walk in, reading his Bible. And I remember him saying, I'm not afraid of death, Tom. The point is, this woman drops, hey, okay, TJ, on me, and I've got a lifetime, I've got 40 years full of memories that flash through my mind in about three seconds of time. And it feels like that's about how fast it's gone. Life's moving fast. That's what James wants you to see. 
To make matters worse, you know, they had one of these mirrors that makes your face like magnified a hundred times at the bathroom, you know, in this hotel we stayed in. I call it a makeup mirror. I honestly have no idea what it means or what it is. I just see women doing their makeup in it. And I've never really looked into one of those before. Uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, just going to be honest. It takes the pores of your skin and it makes it look like your navel, complete with lint. I mean, it freaked me out. I hadn't shaved in two days. I look in this mirror, my eyelids are drooping down. I got all this gray in my beard and I'm saying, who is this guy that I'm looking at? Because I'm at least 25 years younger than that. But actually, I'm not. It's moving. Moses comes to us in Psalm 90, and he speaks of his entire generation. And he says, Lord, you have washed them away. You've swept them away, he says. It's like sandcastles on a beach. You go to the beach with your kids, and they build a sandcastle by the water, right? And then the tide comes in a few hours later, and it's gone. That's a generation. And then another generation is built by some other kids. You get the idea, and then the tide comes a few hours later, and it's gone. And then another generation, and then the tide, and then another generation, and then the tide. That's how fast it's moving. And what is wisdom, according to Moses? He says, Lord, teach us to number our days. That's wisdom. And I'm not trying to depress you here, and neither is James. Do you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to wake us up to the reality of the nature of our life, which is both fragile and brief, and which we're going to invest one way or the other. He says, guys, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. He says, what is your life? You're like a mist. And here comes the sun. Here comes the gentle breeze. You're like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That is how not to speak. That is how not to think. That is how not to plan. So, well, then how do we plan? And he starts to tell us in verse 15. And you can hear it because he says, instead you ought to say. So, you know, that's kind of a clue. And notice then the next three words. He says, if the Lord... I want to give you a little tip for reading the Bible. It is not a race. I know that many of you read through the Bible every year, and I, I, I've tried to do that, and you get lost in Leviticus somewhere in like March, and it's over, right? I don't do that. I don't recommend it. I mean, I think it, you ought to read through it all and kind of know it comprehensively. I understand you know the particulars in light of the universals. But I don't care if you read three chapters or three words. I'd rather you read three words if you read them prayerfully, if you read them thoughtfully, if you interact with them, if it's not a race to get done because you got three chapters in 15 minutes. And the Lord speaks to you. When you read the Bible and you say, if you see, if the Lord, you got to stop and ask questions of it like, what Lord? And then ponder that. And let His Spirit begin to answer that question for you. The Lord who created you, to whom you owe your very existence, and then put everything into you that makes you you. Every gift, every ability, every talent, every opportunity that's ever come your way. Everything. The Lord who sustains you, without whom literally you don't have another heartbeat. 
You don't have another breath. You don't have another moment. You don't have another day. But each day, He gives you life and health and strength and vigor and so forth. The Lord whose mercies in Christ are new every morning, we hear. Every morning. And who in Christ has made provision that we might be forgiven, guys. Washed and made new and clean. If the Lord who not only sustains you and has created you and has redeemed you, but who in having redeemed you then calls you into His mission, a mission that I think we tend to look at as a burden. But think about what it is. It's an opportunity for you and I to take these transient, ethereal, I can walk through you, I can see through you, I can dissipate you with my hands. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the gentle breeze. I guess this is it. The sun's coming up. We better say goodbye. Barely here while we're here, here today, gone tomorrow, lives. And through them, to generate that which is eternal, to generate that which is solid, to generate that which is unmovable, to generate that which is unshakable, to generate that which no breeze ever can blow away. Is that a burden? Or is that a privilege? If the Lord who is Himself the righteous judge in the judgment, and hear this, that's coming. And that ought to motivate us a little bit. Not in fear of the judgment, But in urgency with our lives, our days actually matter. Lord, teach us to number our days that we don't waste them frivolously, at least in comparison with what really counts. The Lord of heaven, the Lord of hell, the Lord of the gospel by which we gain and others gain heaven through faith in Christ. It's free. Just take it. But offer Him your all. James says, instead, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, that is to say, if the Lord grants us yet another day, strength and energy and opportunity within it, then, he's saying, we will live and do this or that. That is to say, we will plan, but we will plan in such a way that gives an account for the Lord our God. As it is, he goes on, meaning when you plan and run your business finances, money, and life, as though there's no God, no kingdom, no mission, no judgment, no heaven, no hell, no gospel, as though this life that you're living, which in reality is unfathomably short and fragile, will never end and is the only life to live for. He says, as it is when you do that, you boast in your arrogance. And the arrogance that he's identified here is the arrogance of thinking that somehow we don't need him. That we're actually self-sustaining as opposed to God-sustained. That we're actually independent as opposed to God-dependent. He says, when you do that, you boast in that kind of an arrogance. And he says, guys, all such arrogance is evil. And then he says this, and it's a verse we skate right by. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And I almost asked you guys to say that word with me, but I just thought, "Ah, that might be pushing it. It's not as friendly as life, is it? So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I want you to think about that for a minute because here's what he's saying. He's saying if you know that it is wrong to plan and run your business, to plan and run your finances, to plan and run your money, to plan and run your time and your talents and your lives as though 
There's no God, no mission, no kingdom, no judgment, no heaven, no hell, no gospel, as if this life will never end and it's the only one to live for. If you know that and yet you do that, it is, to quote James, sin. And unlike so many of the other sins that all of us do all of the time, and I'm chief of us, okay? You can actually count and measure this one. This is not a difficult one to figure out. And James comes to us not in anger, I think in tears. And he says, you don't get life if this is what you're doing. Whoever knows the right thing to do, he says, and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And then if that's not direct enough for you, just wait. Because in the next six verses, he begins to talk about, and I'm going to put this in quotes, the rich, okay? In the most severe language in this entire book. And so before we even look at these verses, i got to tell you who the rich are because, you know, there are some of us here who have a lot of wealth, and right now you're thinking, man, it would have been a good day to play golf. Because I have a feeling that James is coming for me with, oh great, the most fierce language in the book. But he might not be. And here's the other part of the equation. There are many of us here today who are barely scraping through. We are not rich by anyone's definition except by worldwide definitions, which are very different. Very different. And right now you're thinking, whew, finally a message from James that doesn't apply to me. And maybe it does. Real faith lives for God and not money. The rich that James will now take on are unbelieving, that's important, and we'll get to that, people who live for money and not God. And here's the deal. You can have a ton of money and live for God. And you can have no money at all and live for money. And don't you know both people? It's not about how much you have. It's about who or what you live for. See, when he hands us the mirror at the end of the message, he's not going to go in, how much do you have? He's going to say, who, do, who, what do you live for? Because life is short. Invest it well. So he's describing for us now the rich, unbelieving, and that's curious, people who live for money and not God, and yet he's writing to believers. So he's coming to us, for example, as a group of believers, and he's saying, I want you to see the picture of the unbelieving rich who live for money and not God, and here's why. Because at the end of the message, I'm going to give you a mirror, and I'm going to ask you to fearlessly and honestly look into it. And I want you to ask yourself if what marks these people also marks you. And he's not unclear on the marks. He points them out, one after the next. And the language he uses is a little shocking. So if we had crash helmets, this would be the time to put them on. He says this in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, come now. You, unbelieving rich, who live for money and not God is the idea. And then listen to the language. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When? Because it looks like they're doing all right to me. At the end of this transient, ethereal, opaque, I can walk through you, I can see through you, I can dissipate you with my hands. Here comes the breeze. Uh Uh-oh, sun's coming up. Time to say goodbye. Fragile, short, little life. Come now. You unbelieving rich who live for money and not God and weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you at the end of this unfathomably short 
and fragile life that you're listening to. And then listen to what he says next, because this is language that, if you know the words of Christ, ought to sound familiar to you. He says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Sound familiar? Your gold and silver have corroded. It says, literally, have rusted, which is odd, but... But that's what it says, and their corrosion, he says, will be evidence against you. Hear that language? He's saying that the very way in which you've lived, your wealth, he's saying to these people, will be animated in the judgment. It's like their wealth will come to life and will be called to the witness stand to give testimony. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. They'll be called to the witness stand to give evidence against you in the judgment and will eat your flesh like fire. Woo! Okay. And then here's the fundamental problem. Here is the first mark of the unbelieving rich that he would have us to compare ourselves to. This is the issue. Number one, he says, you have laid up. The word means literally to hoard. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Now, why should this sound familiar? Because Jesus says essentially the same thing in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, do not lay up. That sound familiar? You've laid up, you've hoarded in the last days, James says. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, uh uh-huh, and rust, just heard that, destroy and were thieves. So Jesus is adding, break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says this, and it's a classic line. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, look, we're not at the end of the message. He's not ready to give us the mirror, but I want to take a little fearless, honest assessment here for a minute, okay? This is a raise your hand deal. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. How many of you have heard that statement from Matthew 6 before just now. Anybody? Come on now. Yeah, me too. How many of you have basically grown up in the church and that's been more or less familiar language to you all your life? Will you go that far? All right, good. Do not raise your hand. This next question, you and the Lord. How many of you actually do that? How many of you live in such a way as to give or evidence your faith in the wisdom of the Lord our God who says this is a poor place to hoard up treasure? And the place to do it, particularly in light of the brevity and fragility of this life, is heaven. You plan and run your business, your finances, your money, and your time, and your talents, and your lives in such a way as to store up, to hoard up an eternal wealth for yourself there. James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And it's like that's not even in the Bible for a lot of us. Come now, you unbelieving rich who live for money and not God. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you at the end of your unfathomably short and fragile life that you just, like, you don't see that. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. They will be enlivened and they will take the stand and they will give testimony and they will eat your flesh like fire. My goodness. But why? Because, again, it's the first mark of the unbelieving rich that we're to compare ourselves to. He says, for you have laid up, you have 
hoarded treasure in the last days. The first mark of the unbelieving rich that James would have us to compare ourselves to is that of hoarding wealth. And in saying that, he's not saying we shouldn't save money. He's not saying we shouldn't invest it. He's not saying we shouldn't buy insurance. He's not saying any of those things. In fact, the Bible speaks to those kinds of things elsewhere and says that's reasonable. That's prudent. You should have a plan for those kinds of things. You should strategize to make sure that you are able to do those kinds of things. What he's saying instead is that in reality or in in the reality or in the light of the reality of God's judgment, God's mission, God's kingdom, and so forth, of the brevity of this life, of the fragility of this life, at some point... For a lot of us, we really need to stop and say, okay, Lord, you and me, how much is enough? What he's saying is very countercultural. He's saying that at some point, it really is too much. It's fascinating. Reminds me of the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30. Agur prays, prays a prayer that... You know, most of us have prayed the first half of. He says, Lord, give me neither poverty, we're good with that, right? Or riches. He says, if you give me too little, I'm going to be tempted to steal. I know my soul and I can only handle too much poverty and, and so much of this, you know, and the next thing you know, I'm going to run off and defame your name and sin. But then he also says, but if you give me too much, I know my soul too. It can only handle so much. And here's the reality. I'll do exactly what James is cautioning us not to do. I will deny you and begin to think, I don't need you, and practically speaking, to live as though my next heartbeat and breath really is not dependent upon you, but that I'm independent from you. So Mark number one is hoarding money. And now in verse four, he gives us Mark number two, and he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, so they've done work for you, which you kept back by fraud. Oh, now you're not paying your, the wages to these people, then it's due to them, and they're crying out against you. Hear that language? And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You know what that's an echo of? It's an echo of the story of Cain and Abel. Cain takes his brother Abel, they go out into a field, and he kills him. And the Lord then comes to him and says, What have you done because the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground? You hear that? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields and who are dependent upon these wages for life is the point which you have kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Mark number two is withholding money from people to whom it is due. But please understand that biblically speaking, that category of people to whom our wealth is due is much broader than people who have done work for us. And as a result, we owe them money and ought not to defraud them. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs. It's really amazing. He says, do not withhold good. So he's coming to us and he's talking to us about that which we have, money, possessions, whatever. But that we could use to do good for people. And he's saying, do not withhold Good from those to whom it is due. It literally says, from its rightful owners. Did you get that? 
Because he's coming to me about what I have, my money, my possessions, my kinds of things. And he's saying, look, if you have stuff that you, Tom, can use to do good for these other people, your neighbor or somebody else, for example, that I lay on your heart, that I lead you to, if you have goods that you can use to do you know, good for these guys, it doesn't belong to you anyway, it belongs to them. It's like the Lord comes and claims that which is ours and assigns title to these other people. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in your power to do it, he says, do not say to your neighbor who finds himself in need is the idea. Go and come again and tomorrow I'll give it. I'm putting you off when you have it with you. Very countercultural and very biblical. The Bible calls you and I to plan and run our businesses and finances and money and life in such a way that we live more modestly than we otherwise would or could. And here's why. So that we can do good for other people in need. So that we can be there for each other. So that we can actually make a real difference for the poor in this city. So that we can affect the ministry and the mission of the gospel around the world. We're called to live more modestly than we otherwise could or would so that we can take the rest and do good with it. Wow. Real faith lives for God and not money. And James comes to us then with this picture of the unbelieving rich who live for money and not God. And he says, Mark number one, they hoard it. Mark number two, they withhold it from people to whom it is due, and that includes poor people. And to withhold it is to withhold life. That's the language he's using. And then finally, in verses 5 and 6, he gives us the third and maybe the most poignant mark. When he says this, he says, You have lived your unfathomably short and fragile lives on the earth. How? In luxury and self-indulgence. And in doing so, he says, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That's Psalm 49. The image is that of a farm animal. It's very graphic. He's saying these people that you're to compare yourself to are like the cow that moves through the fields of this world, continuously gorging itself and ever seeking to satisfy its, frankly, insatiable appetites. It's always hungry. It's never full. And ever fattening itself in the process, unwittingly, unknowingly, for what? For Winn-Dixie. The beef people. It's graphic. He says, you have lived your unfathomably short and fragile lives on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and in doing so, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And you've done it to the detriment of people that you could have helped. You have condemned and murdered. It's language of life and death. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. To withhold is in some case to withhold life. He does not resist you. Mark number three is indulging yourself while ignoring the plight of the poor. And i got to believe at some point in this message you started thinking, man, I am so glad this is the last message in this book. I mean, I've had that thought. Real faith lives for God, not money. James gives us a picture of people who live for money and not God. And then he hands us a mirror. You ready? Fearless, 
honest? Mark number one, do you hoard money? Do you have too much? Mark number two, do you withhold it from people to whom it is due, people that you could help with it? As God directs, you need to be wise about this. The Bible cautions that too. It's a responsible way to help people. But do you do that? And are you free to do that because you belong to the Lord and in Him is your safety and in Him is your security? Number three, do you indulge yourself while ignoring the plight of the poor? Real faith lives for God, not money. James would hand you the mirror and say, okay, look, fearless and honest, all right? Who or what do you live for? Because life is very, very short. Invest it well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this man, James, chosen and set apart by You two millennia ago, who by Your Spirit has written Your Word. God, He's written a very relevant book in every age, a book that transcends time and culture, that speaks very directly for apparently, Lord, we need to be spoken to directly at times, that leads us to repentance to the one in whom is forgiveness and life, by whom we can be washed clean, not just of sin, but of guilt. And of shame, and I pray that you would make us to be free of all of that, truly to revel in our salvation, but in whom also we find safety and security and the ability to hold on to our stuff less tightly and to be generous. God, make us to be generous after the pattern of the generosity of our Savior who left heaven and clothed himself in the garment of flesh and humility suffering even death, much less poverty, that we might have life and in Him be made wealthy for all of eternity. Awaken us this day to the brevity and the fragility of our lives, to the fact that every day counts. Let us hear in our hearts and in our minds the wisdom that we need to count our days and invest them wisely. And let us find in you and through the doing of all of these things the abundant life that you promise that is not marked in things and possessions, but that is marked in the fruit of the Spirit, in a oneness and in a sense of the presence of the Lord as His hand of favor lays upon us and we know the beauty of being His servant, being the tool through which He spreads the generosity of His gospel throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.